Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's Roxanne Durhaj. Thanks for tuning in again this week with Authentic Living with Roxanne. Today, I'm privileged to have um, a colleague uh, that has so many similarities um, in the field of mental health um, coming on today. Uh, her name is Ronke Kamalafte. Am I saying that wrong? So pronounce it properly. Kamalafi. Kamalafi. I like that's that's really pretty when you say it the way you say it. Kamalafi, Rocky Kamalafi. Rocky and I <clears throat> are both um, Forbes um, council members. I am the chair and I was lucky enough. I think I met uh, Rocky about, about eight months ago now when uh, I believe she was already a member and I was probably just beginning myself. So today what we're going to talk about is mental health and Something that I, you know, in my tenure and obviously Ronke's tenure, we'll talk about. Um, Ronke, I started out really young. Um, and my, you know, for the podcast listeners, they know that I learned quite young that voice was important to me. I grew up, you know, in Trinidad and Tobago in a little, you know, village called Diamond Village. And um, there was a lot of connection and um, really it was like the village was my family over and above my family, but also in that I saw a lot of um, disconnection, some of it with my primary family. So I really very, very early felt that need to be able to share what I was going through and then decided, well, maybe when I grow up, I can maybe help others with that. And that really was where my path got started around mental health. Tell me about you. So a bit about your background. Um, uh, it's Dr. Ronke, I should tell you. And Tell me about your path, which is in mental health, but a bit different um, from my path. What, how, what got you into, um, you know, mental health uh, as, as a specialty? Oh, thank you so much, um, Roxanne. I appreciate you inviting me to your podcast. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, in honesty, um, I've always wanted to be a psychologist, a clinical psychologist as a child. I had the picture of my company laid out by the time I was 12. I had a vision and I was, I was raised and born. I was born and raised in Nigeria. And then I came to America when I was 20. So I had my sophomore, my freshman and sophomore years in Nigeria. And then in my junior year, I moved to um, Kentucky to go to University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. And back then I really just wanted to be a psychologist, but Nigeria never really had a psychological a psychology program in the schools I wanted to go to. So my dad convinced me to become a sociologist, which, you know, it's really about the study of human behavior, very similar to psychologist, psychology, but yet has a lot of differences. So as a psycho sociology major, I, I was very fascinated with all my psych classes. They were very entertaining, easy. And I kept telling myself, somehow I'm gonna end up being a psychologist. I don't know how. So I ended up coming to America in my junior year. I applied to change my major to 
um, psychology. I became a psych major. I was excited. I'm going to become a psychologist or a psychiatrist at this point. I changed my mind or a neurosurgeon, something that has to do with the brain or human behavior because I was just fascinated about the human behavior. And um, by the time I graduated, I was certain I wanted to become a psychiatrist. So after my graduation, I decided to um, become a case manager, working closely with um, a psycho with, with psychologist, therapist, and psychiatrist in a mental health clinic. And as a case manager for a serious mental health clinic, you're the first line of, of communication before therapy or before the doctor. So I really, for, you know, for almost three years, I really got to experience on a day-to-day basis what it means to be a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a therapist, pretty much any type of um, 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 profession in mental health. And after that, I decided being a psychiatrist was not for me. However, I do like the, the um, operational aspect of, of, of medicine. So I decided, okay, I'm still going to go to medical school to become a neurosurgeon. I got in, I applied, I was admitted, and then I had to go shadow <laughs> doctors before I actually started school. And this time around, it was different from a community health center. It was private settings, it was surgical centers. And I had to talk to students, go to classes, you know, for almost two weeks, I was embedded in this process. And it was the most boring thing (laughs) I have ever experienced. Different from psychology or psychiatrists, where you're continuously talking to people about what you're going through. This was very cut and dry. What do you need? What do you want? Let's get it done. And after that, um, I decided the most fascinating thing from my experience both shadowing and working in a clinic was really the operational side of, of healthcare. So I decided to finish my MBA, which I was doing my MBA then and go get my PhD in behavioral health. Um, so as a behavioral health expert, my focus is on integrating mental and physical health. Cause one of the things I saw was for a chronic physical health condition there's always an underlining typically an underlying social determinants of health issue or a mental health issue. And for a chronic mental health issue, there's typically an associated physical, long-term physical health condition. So if you bring a schizophrenic, for example, um, if you're seeing them, they've been on the same medication for 10 to 20 years, the chances of them developing high blood pressure or diabetes as a result of their medication and their condition is very high and very likely. Um, Same thing for somebody who has diabetes. If they don't know how to manage it properly and understand their symptoms, they can easily become depressed when they have low blood sugar, high blood sugar, just depends on their their levels. So I really saw the intricacies and the interconnection between mental and physical health and nobody was talking about it back then. Nobody was associating that somebody who has financial problems is homeless and who has this condition, it's not gonna follow through. Um, these were the experiences I had working in the clinic. So I decided, you know, getting my PhD was in, in behavioral health with a focus of, in, on integrated health was the right way to go. And here I am today. Well, it's interesting, right? <clears throat> so I started frontline with the Metro Toronto Police. Um, and I thought I was here, yeah, I'm, I'm 21 years old. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is real, right? Um, and then realizing that was the human condition and really understanding now in retrospect, 
you know, um, 30 years later, recognizing that every interaction that I had with people would help me look at them holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not long into um, my corporate career, I was looking at health and wellness strategy about what would it take to keep people healthy um, and at work healthy and potentially happy so that we would intervene relatively quickly. And, you know, quite soon, what, what was really, really apparent to me, Ronke, is that um, integrating or understanding the needs of the um, well employee that may step into starting to be unwell is a lot cheaper than when you catch them late stage into short term, when they're about to kind of do that cyclical door of the short term disability claim, where it becomes quite vicious. And then what is the right intervention to get them back on the path? So it's interesting how when I look at you, me starting at at definitely frontline and you wanting to go frontline and going, um, you know, more of an integrated approach, I ended up at that end as well, because ultimately it's what is in people's best interest to be able to offer the, you know, the ultimate solution would help them, um, you know, get the best kind of support that they need to to be healthy, psychologically, emotionally, and biologically. Yeah, I love the way you said it, because when it comes to well-being, you know, a lot of people think eating healthy and being happy is the solution to well-being. But in reality, well-being really is a lifestyle, right? So um, telling people to exercise and eat healthy and sleep, is those are great self-help, self-care tips, but people have to do it continuously, right? It's a lifestyle. And a lot of times, most of what we experience in terms of people having challenges at work or people having healthcare challenges comes from chronic conditions or trauma. Um, it comes from a lot when you do a detailed comprehensive assessment to look at your physical and integrated health, you see an interconnection on why some of these things happened, right? Somebody with a chronic back pain due to an accident they had 20 years ago is physically having chronic condition and pain, right? But in reality, they're traumatized by that accident 20 years ago, which to them, they never needed therapy for. So that trauma continuously shows up as back pain and in other areas of their lives, not in all cases, but in some cases. And in some cases, it then spills into their work life and in their personal relationships, right? So a lot of times our mental health is a history of what we've gone through, either positive or negative, and the long and short-term effect of, that it's having on us. So I love, I love that you touched on it when it comes to work um, it's one thing to tell employees be resilient you know go go exercise we're giving you an exercise benefit we're giving you a therapy benefit but I think in reality it's asking the employees what they need to be okay right and you know when I we looked at the trending analysis you know um, we looked at you know I worked in every um, size and sector of company multinationals from you know 500 lives all the way up to um, I think one of my biggest uh, contracts was over um, 750 employees across North America. And ultimately, what it was, was to understand what were the, the pressures, um, you know, of that individual, what was the, the, you know, these pressures of the environments that they were in, the, 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 the type of uh, sector that they were working with, 
their demographic variables, if it was a 24-7 service, all the things that you know and I know, and that ultimately we could map out if it was in healthcare, for instance, mostly female, generally nurses, 24-7. They're about 40 to, say, 42 to 51 years old. They are either, you know, um, you know, shift work with children that they're raising or maybe they're separated. So the strategies ended up being more kind of focused on what they were needing. But to your point, if we figure out what the core fundamental is for that person, then you're able to versus, you know, let's spray and pray. Let's put a let's put a, you know, a, a nutrition program in. Let's put a, a gym membership. Those types of things are already really good. And for the people that are that you're offering that benefit, that's generally the people that are already using it. But it's the twenty percent. That's what we found. It was that within that twenty percent, and they weren't they weren't sick, um, and they weren't on you know they they were well enough, but they could kind of hide below the radar. So they were the ones showing up every day. Um, you know, they were maybe giving you sixty five percent of productivity or presenteeism, like the term is. I'm going to show up. I'm going to give you my FaceTime, but I'm not going to get the productivity. But those were the individuals that were generally using every benefit um, and they were costing organizations the most, but you couldn't engage them based on those kind of what I'm going to say, blanket benefits. It was always, you know, how do we reach them? So I wonder, I just want your perspective from integrated health. Um, does that make sense? What you see, it's reaching that band and the 20% maybe are an erroneous number for this time um, in the marketplace. But what what is it that you see with that, that subset? Or what are you seeing now with reaching? I, I don't call it I call them the, um, the unknowingly unwell. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it because um, what, first of all, the when it comes to recognizing this, a lot of people don't easily recognize they're stressed out, right? They can physically feel it for five minutes, 10 minutes, or a whole day. And then two weeks later, they notice they have insomnia. They go to their doctor's office, they get medication for insomnia, boom, they stop waking up at two or three o'clock in the morning. And you and I know the pattern of waking up two, two or three o'clock in the morning continuously for at least two weeks, that signifies a level of stress and in some cases, depression right? Mm -hmm. Without doing an assessment, we really can't say that. But we do know that's a pattern. That's part of the questions that we tend to ask if you're trying to screen. But if somebody has those symptoms and they go to the doctor and just say, I'm having insomnia, I'm stressed at work. You know, the doctor asks them the basic, you know, PHQ-9, you know, everything seems okay based on how they answer it. They're getting a medication to sleep well. They think they're okay, right? But the, prog the progression continues. So in terms of how do we capture these individuals, um, my recommendation is we all need to own and be responsible for our well-being, mm -hmm. right? Um, I always tell people, do an integrated health assessment. How is your finances stressing you out? Because if your finances are stressing you out, it could cause more stress in your workplace where you become resentful that you're not making enough. Or maybe you're just spending more than you make. <laughs> it's not really your employer. And that's why you really need to do a true assessment. Why are you upset at your employer? When you're making enough, you're just overspending. It mm -hmm. could be a spiritual assessment, right? You may be living a higher power, but you're not replenishing, you're replenishing and growing in a higher spiritual way. It could be social. You know, um, do you have enough friends? Do you have enough support? support friends. You know, I have friends who tell me, oh, um, 
they're lonely not because they don't have friends, but they don't have friends with um, friends who have kids within their age range, mm-hmm. or they don't have friends who have the same occupational status and professional status with them. So they can't really have certain conversations with them. Or every time they're available to spend time with their friends, their friends have other engagements. So it could be a social issue. It could be a professional issue. How fulfilled and satisfied are you with your job? You know, and it could be a mental health issue. It could be a previous trauma. It could be a kind stress. We all know prolonged stress can lead to mental health conditions. Um, so I think it would be great for employers to do continuous assessment. Give individuals these questions to continuously assess without even asking for a feedback. Because a lot of times there's a distrust. If I were to answer this truly, what are you going to do with my data? Absolutely. They're afraid. They're like, it's performance evaluation time. And, you know, I know in the employee assistance world, um, everything's confidential. But then when disability programs, there was a point here in Canada um, where they're the providers started to offer both EAP and disability. So here we were in the EAP world where we were like, it's completely confidential. You you know, we don't break confidentiality, but then you have these bigger companies which have swallowed up a lot of the smaller companies and they had arms now. They had the EAP arm, but now you have disability arm. Well, the disability arm, you have to give information to the disability provider about you know what's keeping you away from work so how then does the employee feel like I can completely go to this psychologist or therapist and tell them everything and I know unless I tell them about homicide suicide or child abuse nothing gets broken but on the other arm now these bigger um, you know companies these multinationals are now saying well we also offer short-term disability but we won't. We, we need this information because we need to know how long you're going to be off. What is the diagnosis? What is the treatment? You know, and you know what steps are you taking? Blah 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 blah. So people start to get confused. To your point, right? So making sense because again, people are concerned about. Well, I have this is my livelihood, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah, I'm trusting and all. But how do I really know where that information goes? So how do you know when you when you're working with environments um, with from uh, integrated health strategy, how do you approach that cons- concern about trust and data? Mm, that is an ongoing issue in all honesty. Um, one of the things that we've seen has been very successful is give individuals, in some cases, funding and tell them, hey, go subscribe to a certain mental health app, let us know which one. So we right. know you are and we can pay them directly. Um, another one could be give, have them do assessments and tell you what they need. Um, another one is just continuously build the trust and let them know you will never give away their data. You know, you have to bring legal in, you know, and have them s- sign some documents. So it shows that it becomes, a you know, um, some type of legal documents that the company technically cannot provide. Whatever you need to do to prove, to get their trust, having monthly meetings, peer support groups within your companies, you know, um, mom, mom, um, moms with kids less than 10 years old, dad with kids less than 20 years old, you know, mm-hmm. uh, blended family support groups, burnout support groups, creating the support groups. Um, we see a lot of mental health apps there. Um, most of them are great. Most of them do a fantastic job. There's still a trust issue where people feel if they complete the assessment, use that, that someday the company would get that. 
So mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's almost, hey, we have a subscription, log in, we never get your information. You don't even have to use your real name if you choose not to. You know, you can use the company code, but you don't have to use your real name. Whatever you, the company needs to do to help people be okay. And when it comes to well-being, like I said, it's a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So you just don't do it once a year during employee assessment. You know, we eat every day, right? That's for nourishment. We exercise. We need the sun. We speak. We drink. We sleep. We need those things to re-energize ourselves. It's a lifestyle. So is employee well-being. It should be a lifestyle for the company and a lifestyle for the employees, right? So continuously assess them on a monthly basis. What do you need? These are the 10 things we have. How is this working for you? Verbal, I'd say sometimes surveys should be done where employees can just do a Dropbox or you give them a list of questions and it's typed out. They have to print it out anywhere they choose to manually fill it out and drop it in a Dropbox so you cannot trace it. Anything to create that level of trust. So, because when employees are okay, your productivity goes up. It's a win-win. When employees are fulfilled and happy at work, their productivity goes up there. Their presence at work goes up. It's not about showing up to work for an eight, 10 hour job. It's about really giving us that eight to 10 hours, right? Because you can show up. Your productivity might be an hour's work and you can show up for eight hours and your productivity is almost 12 hours worth because you're just on point. So when we truly take care of our employees, it's a win-win situation. And I think with COVID, a lot of companies are striving and doing everything they can to do that in all honesty. It's just, we need more communications from employees to tell us what, what they need. You know, before I started my own company, um, I remember going to my boss back in 2019 and I told him, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be burnt out. It's coming. I can feel it. I can see it. I don't like who I'm becoming. I'm cranky all the time. And I do all my lifestyle um, management. I exercise every day, meditation, yoga, you know, writing my journal. I was doing all of those things. So I wasn't physically tired or really mentally tired, but I was no longer fulfilled at my job. Mm -hmm. I had outgrown that environment. And I told him, he's like, what can I do to help? And you know, I, I came back and I told him, take away all these responsibilities that you've been adding on the last two years. These are not areas of my expertise. I'm doing them because you've asked me to, but now it's causing me to burn out. I need to go back to doing. What do you hired me to do? my area of fulfillment and expertise. What truly makes me happy? And his response is I'm the CEO and I'm making an executive decision Then no, you have to continue doing what you do. And I said, okay, two weeks later, I came back and said, I have a job offer. I'm leaving October, 2019. Unfortunately, I couldn't leave because we got acquired and he chose not to disclose that. But oh, rather to tell them I was coming on board and I was written into the contract. And unfortunately I had to stay with the company for 12 months, but they did not get what they deserved from me. I did not give them the level of productivity I should have given them because I, I was honest. But they, you know, my boss then thought he needed me and he, his communication was, I can get her to do whatever I need. She's very collaborative. I'm like, not at the expense of my health. So I think when we truly listen to our employees, we can give them what they need. One of the strategies I've, I've used, which I haven't done in seven months, in all honesty, but I will go back to doing that was for almost two and a half years after I left that company, I went on vacation every month. Mm -hmm. I took six days off live <laughs> and I would go to the beach, travel to the Caribbean mostly or to Europe 
or sometimes I took a month off, but I would usually travel to the Caribbean, no internet, no computer, and just relax, come back, walk hard for three weeks. And that was what I needed for two and a half years for me to replenish, which was shocking because if you ever told me I would need that, I would have told you no. But I did an internal assessment and my exercise was still on point. Yoga was there, meditation, journaling, praying, everything else was there, my friends, my family. But I just needed a sense of disconnection from technology. After getting my PhD and, and being around computers all day for about you know 16, 17 hours a day, reading or at work, I was tired of always having computer screens in front of me. I needed to disconnect. And that really helped energize me. For some people it could be going camping. I've even done it where in my own house, I would turn off my internet for a week or for, you know, or for a few days and tell my family to call me on like my message. And it feels like a vacation. I never knew turning off your internet could really feel like you were on vacation. Well, I, th- I think that's a great point. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, having chose the field that I did were quite young. Um, that's what they don't teach you in grad school, first of all. They touch on how you take care of yourself. But it was something I, I when I worked with the Metro Toronto Police, like I said, it was the first um, job that I had out of university. And what it showed me was that this, you know, being my head was the most important space that I need to really, really listen to that space because I was, you know, you're, we know when you're in crises, you know, you're, you're in, you're, you're, you know, you're the first responder, you're first up. And I, at that point I was part of a team that was the first responders dealing with the victims of crime. So oftentimes the crime had just occurred. The, the scene was barely cleaned up and we were there um, on site to help the victims of crime. And of course, your body and your brain, uh, Rocky, is wired for that. And I'm wired for that. You know, a bit of a, you know, I think you have to be a bit of adrenaline junkie to do a bit of what I did. But slowly what it started to show me was like, I would be on, on, on. And I worked probably 10 out of 31 days because they knew the impact on uh, human beings. And then when we dealt with difficult cases, I li- it literally took me sometimes 24 hours just to come back down. So you think about that cyclical element of, you know, the human capacity, we are wired for short term bouts of stress, but it's the prolonged effect, which is what you were describing, that at that point, you're trying to replenish by all the things that should give you that bump back. And and you're just not get being able to kind of um, find that timing again, because you need to just go, you've gotten so deep you know, with uh, depletion that it takes you a while just to be able to build back up. And I think finally, um, fortunately or unfortunately with the pandemic, it has shown all of us um, in employees, leaders, CEOs, that we really, we really, really need to start to listen to what people are needing when they say, I really, uh, you know, like when you went to your, what guts it took to be able to go and say, hey, I'm, 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 I'm on the way that now people are starting to say, you know, no, those conversations we used to slight, we have to really, really take seriously because people aren't able to just come back and bounce back like they used to because they're, they're depleted. A lot more people are depleted. Hence why we're seeing such a surge in anxiety and depression as well. Yeah. And I want to touch on something um, that you said about the pandemic, which part of my role in healthcare is regulatory affairs, right? 
assessing what the healthcare industry would look like from a regulatory perspective in a year, in three years, in five years, in 10 years, looking at bill, bills and laws that have been put in place and the policies that need to be implemented, both on, on Medicare, Medicaid and commercial basis, right? I think once the pandemic happened in all reality, uh, I remember as soon as the, the March 20th, I remember writing a memo and sending it to my marketing team. I'm like, hey, we need to get ready for telehealth. Medicare just said, you know, um, services are shut down. They're recommending telehealth. This is going to go statewide, 50 states, get ready. And they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, okay, it's part of my job. Another assessment I did, <laughs> um, COVID is going to last until 2021. And they're like, what? I'm like, hey, from an, from an economical perspective, we didn't just shut down the country. There was already a plan in motion. There were individuals who were experts who evaluated this. COVID and the impact of it would be you know, all the way until 2021 December. My analysis, I didn't even know it would go all the way to 2022, right? Like, so let's prepare what we are going to do from a healthcare perspective to be okay. Now my third analysis, mental health. You shut people down, isolation, loneliness, one of the key reasons people have depression, people have mental health issues, we will see a surge in mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. Let's mm -hmm. be prepared. And for myself, I texted all my friends. I have quite a few friends in mental health. And I said, uh, mental health issues are going to be on the rise. What can we do as friends to support each other so we don't have that? And my friend is like, we just have to all quarantine together and improve <laughs> our social lives and create a yes. schedule. Yes. Right. We need to work out. We're all going to work from home. We know that grocery shopping. How do we handle that? And we developed a social schedule that everybody aligned to. I think during the lockdown, that was the most social I saw, the most social <laughs> interaction I have with my friends. Right. You were all available and you were all safe. Right. Nobody was interacting outside of the group. So we knew we were safe. Nobody was going to get us um, in contact with COVID. But we did the assessment quick to ensure there was no Oh, my fourth assessment was PTSD. Mm -hmm. People who did all of this will not only have mental health issues, but will have PTSD. And people mm -hmm. who are mentally healthy may have PTSD and not really understand it's PTSD. Right. A lot of what I'm seeing right now in, in, in the workplace and even with my colleagues and friends is we call it the COVID PTSD. Mm -hmm. I, I get these calls every week. I, I would say at this point, maybe once or twice a month, it used to be every week. But I would have professionals, healthcare professionals, executives tell me, Honky, I'm okay, but I'm not okay. I don't know what's going on. This was such a great interview that we decided to turn it into a two-part series. Be sure to tune in next week for part two so you don't miss out on the amazing content. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.